This is Mouth Media Network, your inside voice. It's on the cover of the book because it's my favorite food in the world. It's my favorite thing to cook. Um, it has been a recipe. Um, it's been a, a food on both sides of my family for generations. It's the food that makes me feel most connected to everyone I've come from. Um, and it's the food that makes everyone feel better. It was special getting to talk to Julia Tertian. For her, food is mostly about connection and poetry. This celebrated and best-selling cookbook author knew what she wanted to do from a very young age. And that certainty has led her to such recognitions as being named as one of the 100 greatest home cooks of all time. Coming up, you'll hear how simple food can create a connection point between communities. We'll share her journey through her award-winning cookbooks that have become a staple in countless kitchens. The significance of Keep Calm and Cook On and why Julia might just be the captain of leftovers. In the vast culinary landscape we share, we are all carving out a place for ourselves. Each of us in our own way is a one-woman kitchen. I'm Roseanne Gold, and welcome to my kitchen. Julia, I, I can't tell you how excited I am to have you with me today and to be in conversation and just to meet you. Oh my goodness, I don't have that many heroes. I, I tried to meet them all, but I think you're you're one of them. And uh, I'm just so excited to get into the nitty gritty of the way you think and how you cook and what inspires you and who you are and what you love and who you love if you want. Um, but I'll tell you something I love, and I hope you don't mind that I keep it in the bathroom. Um, but you have written many books, and we'll certainly talk about those. But one of my favorites, I know I know all the books you've written. Uh, there's Now and Again, there's Small Victories, Feed the Resistance is the one we're going to talk about right now. It also seems like everything you do wins like best of show. Each one of your books turns out to be the best cookbook of the year, best cookbook of the year, best cookbook of the year. I don't know how someone keeps on doing that, but it seems like you do. Anyway, the book I have in my bathroom is called Feed the Resistance, Recipes and Ideas for Getting Involved. I'm fascinated and interested for many reasons. Um, I care about the world deeply and repairing the world and care about people. I care about what's happening in terms of otherness and in, in the dialogue. But my neighbor and friend happens to be the president of the ACLU, oh, <laughs> Susan wow. Herman. So when I saw that this book was created for them and that the proceeds went to them, I was really smitten. So tell me a little bit about the creation of this book, and then we'll talk more about just you. Sure. Um, well, first, I just want to say I'm so happy to be here. And it's it's very surreal to hear you just say all those things. because <laughs> Those feelings are very, very mutual. Um, and it's it's an honor to talk to you. And I think if anyone knows about making great books, one after the other, I would say you are probably the person. Um, and I'm so touched that uh, Feed the Resistance has resonated with you. I want to put that you keep it in your bathroom. I think <laughs> if we do another printing. 
that could be a is that blurb. good <laughs> i love that oh i was hoping you would feel that way good um yeah so feed the resistance um i always describe it as you're holding it it's it's a small book and i describe it as a little book with a lot in it mm. um it mm. is filled with recipes and essays from over 20 contributors over 20 of the kind of smartest um and most kind of impactful people i know in and around food so this book is very much from a community and it's for a large community and it's always to get involved and it was born pretty much out of the 2016 presidential election and it was born out of um for me personally my feelings my many many feelings i had uh you know a couple years ago when when the election happened and the feeling i had the most that kind of triggered feed the resistance was this feeling of what what can I do? Um, and mm. I was sort of desperate for something to do and something that I felt would be productive and hopefully positive and add something useful to the conversation. Um, so that's where it sort of stemmed from. And it turned into one of the things I worked on that I feel most proud of. And it's really changed me and changed my mm. outlook on things and changed the way I do lots of things because getting to make this book with such an amazing group of people really taught me about what a cookbook can be. And it's oh. it's a book I – there's a lot of different books that have been used, a lot of cookbooks I'll say, that have been used in um, – the sort of history of, of movement building. That's not a new thing. I, I'm by far the first to come up with that. Although, does one come to mind right now when you're saying that? Um, there's a lot of like kind of like indie kind of zine type of books uh, and stuff. Okay. Um, and uh, yeah, some pretty amazing ones. There's um, like the Bloodroot cookbooks are Ooh, really like right. an interesting That's a good example. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So there's, there's a lot of the, the, I mean, even the legacy of like church and synagogue cookbooks yes. that have been around communities yes. forever. You know, Cookbooks have been a place where people can gather recipes, raise money, um, you know, bring kind of like-minded people together, raise awareness. Uh, so that's n- nothing new. But the experience of making Feed the Resistance was new for me. And I, I learned so much. And, and I learned about this legacy that Feed the Resistance very much fits into. Um, and one I, I hope it will continue to promote. And um, yeah, all the proceeds from the book went to the ACLU, like you mentioned. And so within a year of, of making the book, uh, we raised about $20,000 for oh. the ACLU. And to me, that's so important to mention because Feed the Resistance is this small book without any photographs. You know, it's not glossy. Um, no. It's it's an overtly political book. You know, it's all these things that I think a lot of publishers, traditional publishers, I would say, might shy away from. And I, I think that um, that amount of money we've raised, the amount of impact I really feel this book has had, the community it's built, uh, the community it's it's helped to maintain, uh, it's really shown me what a cookbook can do. And that's been really eye-opening. And um, it's, it's just been a privilege to get to put it out there. Wow. <laughs> in fact, I want to read one quote sure. in, in it. You have many amazing ones from really remarkable people. Um, but I th- I'm going to read this quote because I think it just summarizes you. Uh, this is from Adam Sachs, editor-in-chief from Savour. Quote, what can you do? Cook for your community and yourself. Simple food, honestly sourced and lovingly made. Creates connections, gives fuel to the fight. Starves ignorance and apathy. Where to start? With a spoon and a pot and this inspiring, instructive book. This is you, Julia Tertian. <laughs> oh, <thank> you. <laughs> now, yeah. let's get to know you a little bit better. 
I know nothing. Where, where, where were you born? Where did you grow up? Sure. I was born not far from where we're sitting. Um, I was born in Manhattan. Um, I was born at Beth Israel Hospital. On 14th um, Street? Yeah. Okay. And on the east side, I was born, but I was raised on the west side of 14th Street, so I didn't go very far. And, um, and then when I was in middle school, we moved to the suburbs about half an hour away. And I... Which direction? Uh, north, okay. yeah, to Westchester. And then when I, um, I guess when I was 17 or 18, I came back to Manhattan for, for college and I, um, really thought that was the last time I would ever leave the island. <laughs> I was a real, I was a real Manhattan kind of snob. I was like, why would you cross the river? This is the mm. best place in the world. I'm a New Yorker before I'm anything else. And then I met my wife, Grace, who lived so far away in Brooklyn. <laughs> and I moved in with her across the river. And now Grace and I um, were, I guess, in our, our fifth year of living outside of the city. So we live a couple hours north of New York and uh, we, we love it. And it's so funny to me to just think about that sometimes because I really never thought I would leave New York City and I'm I'm really happy where we live and yeah. So well, we'll definitely hear lived. more about that. <laughs> uh, what did you go to school for? Where did you go to school? And what would you be doing now, do you think, if you weren't cooking? I can't tell you because I've loved to cook since before I can remember, um, since I was such a, a little kid. And I've always felt what I can only describe as like a magnetic pull to the kitchen. <laughs> um, and I have known since I was so small that I wanted to make cookbooks. And wow. and I feel like I'm one of the very, very rare and very fortunate people who's known what they wanted to do since a really young age. And I get to do it. And it's, mm. you know, I, I feel grateful for that every single day. So I have been um, on the, on this path <laughs> for pretty much my whole life. So I have no idea what I would be doing if I wasn't cooking. I mean, I guess if I wasn't working on cookbooks, I, I would be cooking. Um, I think I will always have my hand, you know, kind of stirring a pot, <laughs> like you said. Um, I don't think that so would change. But interesting. Yeah. Um, I can see being young and wanting to cook, this idea so specifically of wanting to write cookbooks. I have actually never heard anyone say that yeah. before. This is completely unique to you. <laughs> well, so what inspired sure. you? What, how did this happen? Um, well, it in, what inspired me was exposure to print media. And my parents worked in publishing. They both worked in magazines. Um, so I grew up in Can a Can you house. tell us? What? Sure. Yeah. yeah. My, I mean, my mom worked at Connie Nass for about 25 years, I think 24 or something like that. She actually hired my dad. <laughs> That's how they met. <laughs> um, she at the time was an art director. She hired him as a graphic designer. They worked together in the art department. Uh, they both, of all the magazines or just one in My particular? mom pretty much everywhere. She worked at, I, I don't know if every single title, but she moved around a lot within mm -hmm. the company. Um, she went from working in art departments. Um, she became an editor. She actually, like, fun fact for food media, my Epicurious was my mom's baby. <laughs> um, that is a fun yeah, fact. Yeah. So she, you know, she was there when sort of Condé Net started. Um and my dad uh, continued to work in different 
kind of art departments. He then worked at Family Circle magazine mm -hmm. um, for, I think, close to 15 years. And he always had a freelance book design uh, kind of side gig. <laughs> um, and he now, that's what he does full time now. My dad designs books, but mostly interior design books. So uh, not cookbooks, not cookbooks. He's helped me with some stuff before. But yeah, he's not really a cookbook guy. He's more of a interiors guy. Right. But is that why your books are so beautiful and have this very cool aesthetic? Oh, well, I appreciate that. They're sophisticated and also very approachable, well, very homey. Yeah, I'm going to yeah, put that on the blurb too. Yeah, thank yeah. you. Um, so <laughs> I, I definitely think, I mean, I am through and through my parents' daughter. Um, and I I think my sense of the um, the many layers that go into a book comes from them. I think I talk to a lot of other cookbook authors. I have a lot of um, friends who are also cookbook authors and, and colleagues, and we talk a lot. And I think so much the conversation is about the writing and the recipes, which are so important to me. I mean, hugely important to me. But I think as much about the photography and the design, um, you know, all these layers that go into it. And I I feel fortunate that all of that feels really um, sort of intrinsic to me, intuitive to me, because I really grew up in it. You know, my parents, when I was a kid, it was before everything was online. And my parents would bring home their work every night, every mm. weekend. And they were literally sitting around the table cutting and pasting things. And they were making pages of, of magazines. You know, I saw that happen. And wow. I, I saw them reading stuff and thinking about how to present it visually. So this was the, um, you know, the language spoken in the house I grew up in. Uh, so I was I was exposed to books and, and to magazines from such a young age. So I knew that was a career. People made these things. They made this kind of content. Um, you know, it didn't just exist in a bookstore. You know, people were were behind the scenes making it. And I, I feel so lucky I got to see that from such a young age. And I think it's not something um, everyone gets exposed to. And I I love it. I love making books. And I love the whole process. And there's, so, as I just was talking about, there's so many different parts to it. And that's, I think, what keeps me going for it, because I you know, I'm not doing the same thing every day. And there's such a mix of of um, sort of activities um, yes. and responsibilities that go into making a book. And uh, yeah, and you asked about my education. I studied writing in college. Um, and I specifically... Creative writing or journalism? Yeah, creative or... writing. I studied poetry. Um, no way. And, yeah, you know, which I know we you have, have this in yes, common. Yes. Okay. <laughs> and I, I was eager to talk to you about it because I think... It's maybe not the most like straightforward path to being a cookbook author, but to me it was an essential part of my of my work because I I think it's one of the best things you can um, have an appreciation for and to have like a deep study of if you're going to write recipes for a living because you have to write very descriptively, um, you have to write very economically. <laughs> I, sometimes I think maybe this is me justifying spending a lot of money studying poetry, but I think it's really it's been kind of the backbone of my work. And and I think to see to, you know, go through the world as a poet. I mean, I don't really write so much poetry anymore, but it's how I think about you will. things like, you know, like you're always looking at details. And I think that's what a cookbook is. So. And the unspoken. Yeah. Um, I don't know if you know, I actually teach a class at the new school called The Language of Food. And I believe I may be the first or among the first to actually look at menu language as a form of literature. Mm -hmm. And we talk specifically about the relationship between chefs and poets. Yeah. Because it is about essentializing. It's about using the fewest words to elicit hunger, anticipation, longing, and desire. What's actually happening in the brain? I'm and signing this is up. <laughs> I'm gonna be in no, the you're going to come row. and teach it. No, you're coming. <laughs> 
I'm signing you up. Um, because when you think about it, if you think about a cookbook and why people take them to bed, mm -hmm. why do people pick up cookbooks? They haven't eaten anything out of that yet. What happens when you go to a restaurant, look at a, a menu? Why are you ordering that particular dish? It's not probably because you went out because you were so sure you wanted to eat chicken that night. But there was some language. There was a grace note. There was a color. There was uh, something that triggered something in our memory that created uh, what I call the swoon factor. Mm -hmm. And language is doing this. Aesthetics are doing it. And that you had this experience growing up with your parents when everyone was playing maybe with dolls or guns or fire trucks or whatever. You were watching creativity in process and progress and how alive that was. Mm -hmm. So that's very, very exciting. Yeah. Oh, gosh. Yeah. <laughs> I, um, I mean, yeah, you are, you're speaking my language. For yes, I'm sure. feeling that a bit, Julia. <laughs> okay. So you went to school and then what happened? Because, you know, many people who will be listening to this, men and women, young and old, um, love this industry and love this business. And how, how does one start? Sure. You know, it's such an interesting question, and and I talk to a lot of people who who want to get into kind of cookbook authoring, into food media in some way, and I I don't think there's a linear path. No. Um, so I I'm happy to share my story. I I just say that to say I don't I don't know how applicable it is, um, because I I just I think. I think the landscape has changed a lot. And, and Every week, it not, seems. Uh, yeah, and, and not a long period of time. But so for me, I, I mean, I, I kind of joke about, but it's totally <laughs> serious and honest. I started writing about food the first time I wrote a book report in like middle school. I wrote about what they ate in Huck Finn. I mean, it was li of like, course you did. to me, <laughs> the food in any piece of literature. What did they eat? <laughs> Do you remember? <laughs> I'm trying, I think they caught some fish. Um, I think there were some berries found somewhere. I should see if I have that paper somewhere. Absolutely. I hold on to these types of things. So I bet it's somewhere. I'll have to follow up with you. <laughs> you know. Good. It's going to be in a, a or future book. The book. Yeah. Um, so I, yeah, I've, I've been kind of on the on this path for so long. So when I was in college, um, and I was studying poetry, and I was writing a lot of um, very, very earnest poems mm. about food, um, which is means also poems about desire, um, you know, and poems about nostalgia and memory and family. Um, you know, so I was I was sort of deep into that. And I was also in New York City. So I was in close proximity to a lot of food media. Um, and so I started, I interned at Food and Mind magazine when I was in college. I worked for a, a television producer um, who made uh, food programming for public television. Um, Can you mention some names? Sure, because yeah. maybe many people would know and I might. So. Yeah, so when when I interned at Food and Wine, it was when Dana Cowan was um, oh. still editor and uh, and Kate Crater was still there and I was, I was sort of their intern. It was the first time they did Whoa. a cocktail guide and I got to do some research for that. I was not yet 21, which was kind of <laughs> funny. Um, and I uh, did some part-time work for the producer. Um, his name is Charlie Pinsky, and he's oh, still I very active. I know who he yes, is. I <laughs> imagine you guys have crossed paths. Um, I did some part-time work for Mark Bittman when I was in college, um, doing some research. I remember one weekend I, I had a really small, tiny studio apartment on the, on the ground floor on 85th Street. I thought was like my palace. And when I look back, I mean, it was like a shoebox that basically was like on half of the sidewalk. But um, I remember one like long weekend just um, cooking 
beans in all these different ways and adding salt at all these different times and doing all this testing. Mm. I think Mark was working on his um, how to cook everything vegetarian. And so just little bits of research here and there, basically whatever I could do, um, whatever door I could get my foot in, I I, I just really shoved my foot in that door um, and tried to get as much experience as possible. And But you felt like you were being pulled or drawn, like you use a magnet. Yeah. You just kept going there. Yeah. No, and I felt very aware of how um, fortunate I was to have these opportunities. Um, Or create them, as you did. Yeah, Mm -hmm. absolutely. Um, And and to really take advantage and to soak up everything I possibly could. And I remember during my internship at Food and Wine that I think the test kitchen, I don't know what recipe they were working on, but there was a need for a certain type of cheese that someone thought they had ordered. And this is before Fresh Direct and, you know, Amazon Prime. And I don't even know. There's probably so many things I don't know about because I don't live in the city anymore, but where you could just call something and it would get delivered immediately. I'm not that old, but Things that <laughs> no, evolved not. <laughs> really quickly. Um, so I was like, I'll go. I'll go to Murray's Cheese. And they like gave me cab fare. And I was like, I, I get to go to Murray's Cheese and buy this cool cheese and I don't have to pay for it. Like that to me was huge. Like what a cool thing. And to get to learn about this and the guy's giving me a taste. And do you remember what it was? I don't. I remember that experience. Um, I remember it, too, because the taxi I was in bumped into a guy on a bicycle who was fine. It was all (laughs) fine. But then they were yelling at each other. And I was like, this is really dramatic. No wonder you don't remember the name of the cheese because I would normally think you would. Um, So I I felt, you know, it's so funny looking back. you You think about these things that really, you know, kind of were seeds planted. Um. And I'm just really, really happy that I was aware of how um, how major those opportunities were, even if it was just mm. buying cheese. But to yeah. me, that was a that was a big deal. Um, and to get the responsibility to pick it up um, was huge. So I yeah, so that's basically kind of, I would say when I my my professional work started, even though I had been kind of working towards it for a long time and it had been, you know, that interest I had in um, making cookbooks was there since I was a child. And I I taught myself how to cook from when I was a little kid. And I read, I mean, I didn't even read cookbooks It was at first. It was before I could read. I would just flip through them. I just love the photographs. <laughs> as soon as I could read, I was reading them. I was bringing them to bed, as you said. Like, I couldn't fall asleep without reading them. I came home every day from school and watched public television. And I watched Great Chefs on the Discovery Channel. And, you know, I made it my um, my education. And so I was, I've always been so driven towards this. So that's kind of how things started for me. And when I graduated college, um, the television producer I mentioned, Charlie, was putting together a PBS show called Spain on the Road Again. And it was a travel and sort of food show around around. That was Spain. the one with Mario Batali, mm-hmm. Mark Bittman, and Gwyneth Paltrow. Yes. And Claudia Basols, who's this wonderful Spanish actress, who I feel like oh. always gets left out of the, the list of them. Um, but yes, that was the show. And I was hired to be an assistant to the um, to the writer on the show who was going to be doing the companion cookbook. Um, and I, I can't even remember exactly what happened, but he ended up not finishing the whole project. And I had been I had been there as a recently graduated English major um, who was eager to be helpful. 
So I was just there taking a million notes. I brought literally a stack of notebooks. And, <laughs> and as we were shooting things and I was there watching a television show get made, I just wrote everything down. I treated it like I was in a classroom and I just took all these notes. And then every night I would transfer the notes to my laptop and I was creating this document that I didn't even realize was a book at the time. I just thought, here's what happened. <laughs> so you became that person? Yeah. So that was my first book I worked on. Um, so that's why I say I don't, you know, I, the, so many things led up to that opportunity. Um, and so it's hard to say, do this, do this. This is how you become a cookbook author, because it was a lot of, um, yeah, a lot of just, I think, I don't know, paying close attention to opportunities, seizing them as much as, as I could. Also, I mean, I had a lot of, um, support and I would say a huge amount of privilege on my side. You know, I had parents who worked in publishing who were able to, you know, help me get in in the door. And I think that's important to acknowledge because sometimes that door seems really far away <laughs> for a lot of people. So, but yeah, that's how I got started. And one thing just led to another. And I think the best way to describe my work is I never have written a resume. It's all been like word of mouth. and Fantastic. Yeah. Okay, so coming up, you'll hear much more about Julia's award-winning cookbooks, but also about what's really meaningful to her right now in terms of her advocacy work for many men and women in the industry. a cooking tip to share. It's a recipe for one of my favorite simplest soups, and it's wonderful for summer. It's called sweet tomato watermelon soup. Only three ingredients. One pound of ripe red watermelon, seeds removed, one pound of grape tomatoes, and a tablespoon or two of pesto. Combine the watermelon and tomatoes in a blender and process until completely smooth and velvety. Add a pinch of salt. The amount will depend completely on the flavor and ripeness of the fruit. Chill well and top with pesto. From my kitchen to yours, give it a try and pass it along. So Julia, I'm really curious before we talk about more books, what was the first thing you made that you said, wow, this is really good, or I'm meant to do this? Uh, it's, it's such a funny question, because I, I can think back to early things I made um, that definitely weren't great. <laughs> um, and I'm a big believer in the kind of 10,000-hour theory, like you get good at something just by doing it over and over and over again. Uh, but the first thing that just you know jumped into my head when you said that was... I think it was probably sometime maybe like middle school years, um, maybe like around the age of 12 or so. I'm just picturing where my family lives. So, And the kitchen I was in is how I'm identifying that time. Um, I went through this huge phase of trying to perfect um, like breakfast potatoes, like hash browns, like uh -huh, potatoes so you would easy. get at like a diner. <laughs> And I went through, I feel like, every variation. I bake the potatoes first and then slice them and then cook them in a pan. I bake them first. I crumbled them, cooked them in a pan. I boiled them first. I, I didn't cook them first. You know, I just did, you know, I went through it. And I think to me that was, I, I don't even know how the potatoes turned out, but I remember that experience so clearly. And that being kind of my first understanding, I feel like, of what it is to really work on a recipe and to 
try it in all these different ways and to try and come up with the way that you feel is worth mentioning um, and is worth serving and, you know, is worth, um, you know, celebrating in some way. And all those potatoes were perfectly edible. You know, I didn't throw any out. Um, You know, I think sometimes you're cooking just to make dinner. Not every meal you make has to be the best meal you've ever had or (laughs) has to be, you know, something that's worthy of uh, turning into a recipe for a cookbook. Um, But that kind of like sort of striving to really figure out what I thought was, quote unquote, like the best way to make them. Yeah. um, The way that was sort of like easiest and most reliable. um, Yeah, that was happening when I was about I don't know, 12 or so. So So that's so interesting to hear that because I'm hearing much less about the outcome and the potatoes and so much about you, even in that very answer about the process process and opening and Mm -hmm. the curiosity. Yeah. There's no way I would have done that. (laughs) (laughs) No, I just want to get to maybe delicious as quickly as I possibly can. Um, What was the answer? How do you make a great hash brown potato? I'm not sure I ever had it. I, so the way that I, I don't make them a ton now, but the way I do them now is actually not anything I just described. I love, (laughs) I love making hash browns that are basically like latkes, like, and I will coarsely grate them. Yes. And I think that's kind of the quickest way. Carboiled or not? I don't. No. No. Mm -hmm. And I just make them sort of thin and crispy. Sometimes I'll do like, like a big nonstick skillet and then put, you know, usually a little olive oil, a little butter um, to get sort of best of both worlds and like a thin layer of the grated potatoes. And I like things really crispy in general, but especially Mm. when it comes to potatoes. Excellent. Thank you. Squeeze them dry first. Of course. That's that's the most important. So that's like a big latke, as you mentioned. Yes. I make something like that too. Um, now I oh, want that. I haven't made that in so long. <laughs> <laughs> and rather than make little individual ones, you this way you just cut them into kind of pie-shaped wedges. Exactly. It's kind of yeah. a fun thing to do. Yeah. What would you serve that with today? Um, I mean, if it was breakfast, like with eggs and, mm-hmm. yeah, eggs, coffee. But maybe a cranberry chutney or an apple oh, sauce sure, or yeah. something with pears. Yeah, or... yeah. I love, um, like, when it comes to latkes, um, just when it comes to anything, I like pretty much all the condiments. <laughs> um, so I'm a big like sour cream and applesauce person. Wonderful. So yeah, I would do yeah something like that. Maybe like a roasted applesauce. I like a that. roasted applesauce. Yeah, where you roast the apples first instead of kind of boiling them. I think it's easier and you get more flavor. So but, Julia, yeah. before we go to the cookbooks, mm-hmm. as, as I said, this is going to be the theme. We're never going to get there because <laughs> I keep asking you questions. What do you love? Just in general. In general, about food, restaurants, other people's work. Yeah. Um, I mean, when it comes to to food, um, your last and, meal, you know, yeah. what, what do you love? I mean, what I love about what I do is that I get to learn people's stories. To me, mm. it's really nothing to do with the food. I mean, I could talk about crispy potatoes and yeah. applesauce all day. I mean, it's, <laughs> yeah. it's, it's so fun. To me, that's like the really fun part of the work. But the deep meaning is that food is this access point to people. Um, it's how I have gotten to know so many people. And it's how I've gotten to share myself with with people it's it's this way to connect that i think is accessible for just about everyone um i think we can all understand in some way on some level each other through what we eat so i i just think that's amazing and that never ceases to amaze me and the people i've gotten to meet through food, you know, so that could be writing about them or just sharing a meal with them or asking them how they cook the meal that they shared with me, you know, whatever Mm. it might be. I get to connect with people and I get to go through life with a a very um, 
kind of regular feeling of of human connection. And I think that is incredible. So beautiful. And actually, a very exciting time for that. This was not the case 20, 30 years ago. Uh, It was where you ate. It was what you ate. Um, It was where you traveled to, how many stars. This is the kind of conversation we used to have. And today, it's maybe not even what you ate, but who you were with. And this is new and this is so exciting. And I really see this as fundamental to the question about you and your advocacy work and what's important to you. And I know you started, um, I I don't know whether to call it a movement or organization, but it's called Equity at the Table. Yeah. Tell tell us a little bit. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Equityatthetable.com, which is easy to remember because it's eat with two T's. (laughs) That's great. Yeah. So it is. Where's the t-shirt? I know. know, I was just talking with someone who's worked with me on some eat stuff about she wants us to make all this. um, What's the word? Uh, Swag. Yeah. (laughs) Bags and (laughs) t-shirts. Maybe you will. Yeah. One of these days. So um, yeah, Equity at the Table is a digital directory. It's a database. And I started it uh, over a year ago. I started it April, I remember it was April 4th, 4-4-2018. And it is a really useful resource is the simplest way to describe it. And so what it is, is uh, this digital database that is a directory of women and non-binary individuals in food. And we focus primarily on people of color in the queer community. And it is um, just this very easy to navigate and, and free to use and free to join site that lists pretty much every food profession um, I can think of. And I put together an advisory board when I started all the professions we could think of. And now it includes even more than that because there are plenty we didn't think about. So you can search for, you know, a a cookbook author. You can search for a chef. You can search for a caterer. You can also search for a tea specialist or someone who makes (laughs) cheese or beer or, um, you know, now I'm naming some things I didn't think of originally. Uh, You can search for a farmer, a food Mm. photographer, But what's really cool is you can not only search uh, via profession, you can also search by location and or identification. So if you are hoping to find, um, let's say, a food stylist based in maybe California who identifies as Indigenous American, um, there's a good chance you'll find her on Equity at the Table. And I started it as a kind of I mean, it, it really is a response to what I see as just a lot of of gender and racial discrimination in the food industry, which is true of many industries. That is definitely. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that is not exclusive <laughs> to food by any means. And for me, it came out of my personal experience of and I'm I'm sure um you can relate to this. It's when you have the, you know, the, the opportunity to put out things like cookbooks in this world, that, that leads to a lot of other opportunities. It leads to things like invitations to panels, um, to getting to come on a podcast like yours, (laughs) these types of things. And I, um, when I was starting to do those types of things, I, I, I was just looking around and I was realizing I had known this before, but it, it really hit me when I was just sitting on a lot of panels that I was looking around and, myself and everyone around me was white. And Mm -hmm. I just thought that uh, it's not great. Um, It also is a way less interesting conversation. We're in this echo chamber, like this isn't that useful and it's not that interesting. Um, And I started speaking up about it when, you know, someone invited me to something, I I would ask who else was being invited. Um, And I would ask for that list ahead of time. And when I saw that, you know, there, it wasn't like a very inclusive group, I started recommending 
people. And I was like, well, why don't you reach out to so-and-so or this person or that person? And I basically got to a place where I thought, wouldn't it be so great if I could just send a link (laughs) to a website? And I assumed one existed. um, And I just wasn't aware of it. And, you know, there's plenty of amazing resources online and offline, um, you know, list of say, you know, you know, wonderful female chefs in in the United States, or, you know, whatever it might be, but there wasn't something as all inclusive as as eat is. And especially with a focus on just people of color in the queer community, and what I see to be the most marginalized of marginalized voices. And when I couldn't um, find it, uh, I, I thought, well, I'll make it. Not mm. really understanding what goes into building yeah, something like that. Yeah, I was like going to say, I can't yeah. imagine and who you needed yeah. to get to help you with yeah. this. I mean, it's massive. Yeah. Um, so you decided to be the change and, and, and be the light, the guiding light in all of this. But it's almost making me laugh because I've been involved recently with creating some panels and uh, involved with things around school and the new school events and other things as well. And this year, we've heard the same refrain. And I'm thinking, this is so fabulous. But where's this coming from? Everyone would say, who else is on the panel? Mm -hmm. I want to see who's there. I won't be on it unless. And it was like at this kind of fervor Mm -hmm. uh, this year. And now I know how it got started. Oh, I mean, I can't take credit (laughs) for that by any means. But I think... I, I'm I'm just a big believer in, uh, you know, uh, there's a there's a lot more we can accomplish together than Absolutely. separately, and I think that's true for you know so many different causes and reasons. And I I'm a I I just believe in collective energy and collective power, and I think for me I had a, a real personal sort of fundamental shift when I realized oh this is bigger than me. This isn't just mm. about me. And I think we're all the stars of our own movies. That's how <laughs> we, I kind we of can see be. it. Yeah. Right. And, you know, you sort of navigate life based on your own needs and um, desires. And I think when you just start, at least for me, when you start to kind of include other people in, in that thinking yes. and perspective, um, it becomes bigger than you in a way that I find um, wonderful and exciting. Um, so wonderful. And and comforting, too, also to know certain things that maybe have been difficult for you have been difficult for other people, too, you know, to find that kind of, again, that sort of point of human connection is, is powerful. Is it national and international? Or yeah. Just national? It's, oh, it's, yeah. It's everything. Yeah. Well, what's so cool about Equity at the Table um, is that it is a digital resource. So it is always growing. Um, and it's it's always changing. And, you know, I'm, I'm, so used to print. I'm someone who works on books and they go to print and then they're, you know, on paper and, you know, you can't really change it once it's out there. <laughs> and I'm just like sort of tickled by what is possible online, which I know I'm like, this is such like old news that it feels new to really? me. Really? I have a flip phone. I don't know how to text. So you're, you're good with me. <laughs> I think that's great. Well, you know, I was very involved with an organization called Les Dames de Scoffier, mm-hmm. which started 40 years ago and was the first woman's professional organization of um, women who were in food, wine, and hospitality industries. And it's been a slow grow. So to see what has happened over the last 40 years is remarkable, but mm-hmm. it is absolutely the time for not just women, but for men who have a food voice. Mm-hmm. And we're all discovering that we have one. And um, and that's very, very exciting. Also, 20 years ago, or maybe even 30, that list of professions in food maybe would have filled half of a 
paragraph or a very short column. So I'm hearing two things about equity at the table. Number one is that the possibilities within the food industry are huge now, and they keep growing. And um, and that's very exciting. And you even mentioned a few you weren't even sure you had remembered. Um, I think an amazing area for women, uh, they need to get into being buyers, food buyers for restaurants and companies. There's so much power there, and there's so much connoisseurship, really uh, expertise that's needed. And I think that's a great area for women to get into. But the fact that your list is so long, are you talking hundreds of names, thousands of names now? Yeah. I mean, we're up to about a thousand members, which is really cool because it it started with a a hundred. We had like a hundred founding members and those were a hundred people that I had reached out to personally. They were people I either knew or, you know, someone recommended because it felt important to me when we launched the site that you could see exactly what it was. You could search it from minute one. Um, you know, I didn't want to launch Equity at the Table as an idea. I wanted it to be a resource yes. from from the get-go. Um, so yeah, we've grown pretty much kind of like tenfold in about just a little over a year, which is really cool. And the, uh, the professions have grown. And you know, I think you bring up such a good point, um, which is the, the this thing we call the food industry is a gigantic umbrella, and there are so many different industries within it. Um, you know, from uh, cookbooks to podcasting to to buying things for supermarkets, and I love what you said about um, more women getting into buying, um, and I think getting more people into positions of power who haven't been there before is essential. Um, and I like thinking about that one as as one of those opportunities. The same as I think about, you know, it, it's it's amazing to see how the landscape of cookbook authors is changing. I am really excited to see and hopeful about the landscape of cookbook agents and editors changing, you know, the people who get to make those decisions. I, yes. think, I think it's so much about these positions of power and, um, I yeah I, I have a lot of hope for for how that might change. Up next, a deep dive into now and again into keep calm and cook on into small victories and to Julia Tertian's legacy recipe. Follow me on Instagram at Roseanne Gold and check out everything I'm up to on my website at roseannegold.com. Okay, to your books. The first one, your first cookbook was Small Victories. Mm-hmm. And what was the theme of that? Sure, yeah. So Small Victories was my first, um, what I guess I would call my first solo cookbook. Um, so before Small Victories, I had you know collaborated on, co-authored uh, close to maybe 10 other cookbooks. So I went That's into- That's remarkable. Yeah, and I, <laughs> I, you know, I really got to, I got to really learn about what, what goes into making a cookbook. And I got to take all of that experience um, and and that knowledge with me into making my own first cookbook. Uh, and so Small Victories, it came out in September 2016. Um, that cookbook is sort of all my favorite kind of home cooking recipes from this lifetime of home cooking. And every recipe, the sort of hook of the book is that every recipe is introduced with a, I'm doing air quotes with my hands. Okay. I know your listeners <laughs> you can can't see, see that. Air um, but an air quote, a, a small victory. Um, so to me, that's like a tip or a technique. And every single recipe included one. And it was a tip or a technique that kind of made that recipe a little easier or allowed you to understand it, um, allowed you to kind of build this toolbox to become 
a more kind of intuitive, relaxed home cook. My goal with Small Victories was to empower home cooks and Mm. to kind of see that sort of theme through every single recipe in the book was followed by a number of what I called spinoffs and their variations. So the idea was once you knew the Small Victory, not only could you make the recipe, the main thing, you could also make so many other things. And that's how I've really learned to cook, how I approach home cooking. And uh I, I I I love small victories. I'm I'm really proud of it. And what I'm most proud of is that so many of the recipes have become real staples in in people's homes. And yes, can you know, I really, hear two or three of them? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, so I I would say the recipe that kind of took off the most. Um, are the the turkey and ricotta meatballs? They're, oh, I've heard about they're these. So they're easy. yours. They're mine. They're, <laughs> but no, they're not even mine anymore. They're everyone's. they're everyone's, and that to me is amazing. And I mean, I know you can relate to this. I think you know when you're writing a cookbook and you're putting your heart, your soul into it, your memories. Um, you know, the the turkey and ricotta meatballs were the first thing I ever made for my wife, Grace, before we were married. It was the mm. first thing I cooked for her. They're a hugely sentimental, important thing to me. And now lots of people make them and they're important to them in their own ways. And that's a Wonderful. remarkable thing. And that's something cookbook authors have access to that other authors don't. You know, people make the things we write about and they become their own stories. <laughs> and they eat them yeah, too, right? It's, it's really amazing. And it so. becomes part of their family exactly. lore and yeah. experience. Yeah. What's the predominant spice or herb in those turkey meatballs? Um, I mean... There's garlic, parmesan, parsley, um, basil. So parsley and basil. Yeah, parsley mm. and basil. You can get away with just one or the other. Uh-huh. I've done them. I've had like extra like baby arugula in the fridge. I've chopped that up. They're very. It's Great. a very forgiving recipe. <laughs> very very forgiving. Are they in a sauce? Are they? They're in like, like a really tomato simple sauce? tomato sauce. Okay, um, and that's sort of built into the recipe. You can also use a jar of tomato sauce if you want. Um, I've made them. You roast them first instead of pan frying them. You roast I, the meatballs. The meatballs okay. before they go in the sauce. I do that because. Because I just think it's a lot easier and you can do them all at once and there's not like grease splattering all over your stove. To me, that's just like a practical practical thing. But Julia, maybe you can yeah. help me with this. Yeah. I cannot get my meatballs to stay round. Yeah. Do you have any <laughs> do you have any? They look like tops yeah. somehow. They have that yeah. That's okay. Any, uh, that's okay. So <laughs> you don't want fine. me to fix my meatballs. You just want me to say Enjoy them. It's okay. It's fine. Enjoy yeah. them. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Give me another one or two recipes from that from book, small and then we're going to um, Talk about others. The, you know, a, a recipe that I think has been really popular from that book, um, which which surprised me, was a recipe I almost didn't include because I thought it was too simple. Um, and I was like, is this worthy of putting in the cookbook? And it's these fried eggs that are sitting on um, like a bed of yogurt that you mix with some lemon juice. And you squeeze wow. some lemon on top of the fried egg. So it's this sort of like cold, creamy, lemony yogurt Ooh. with a hot fried egg. And you eat that all together. They're so good. They're so simple. And it's yeah. like three ingredients. Yeah, you know, and that's I, my and thing. I, three ingredients that are probably <laughs> already in your kitchen. Um, and I almost didn't include it because I was like, well, that's just too simple. And that was a real lesson for me. And no, mm. like, I think myself and other people who cook at home all the time, you want the simple stuff that's going to be really good. You know, that's that's what you'll use all the time. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, many yeah. years ago, I wrote an article called The Rules of Recipe Attraction. And that also goes to language and yeah. like why we haven't eaten it yet. We haven't even smelled it yet. Why mm-hmm. in a cookbook do we choose that particular mm-hmm. recipe? And it's really interesting what people um, say yeah. and kind of what inspires them. 
So you, I love what you said about your book, that you were very proud of it and that you love this book. And I think the intention of it is fantastic. Thank you. Um, now and again, what would you say the underlying premise of that is? Now and again, um, which is my most recent book, um, comes entirely from my love of leftovers. <laughs> I, am, I'm a, I kind of feel like the world is like, it's, it's one of those things we can divide it into two people who either love leftovers or hate them. I am like, I love them. I am like captain of team leftovers. I love them. <laughs> um, and I love reinventing them. Um, I'm happy to kind of reheat something or eat it cold out of the fridge. There's nothing wrong with that. But I also love turning leftovers into something entirely new. And so that was something I really um, thought would make a great cookbook. And so now and again, um, yeah, is that kind of dream of mine come true? And what I ended up doing was making a book of all menus, really, really simple menus. And every single menu includes the simple recipe, so you can make the whole menu. And then following each menu, there's all these ideas for ways to reinvent the leftovers from that whole meal. And I did that because that's true to how I cook at home. Um, you know, it's funny, when I started working on that book, and I thought it would just be the leftovers, I had this big problem because I was like, well, where does the food come from in the first place? Like, do I give you like, the... Like, you have to make the leftovers yeah, in order yeah. to do this. So yeah. it sort of evolved into this bigger book um, that I think is ultimately just so much more useful. Um, and it was it was a really fun book to make. And I got to tell a lot of stories in that book about, you know, when I first made whatever menu for whoever I made it for. Um, you know, I got to speak about a lot of friends in that book. Mm. You know, it was a really, a really, really personal book. Yeah personal book. I think mm -hmm. everything you do is, but it sounds like there's an evolution here yeah. and uh, more conversation you're having with yourself, yeah. even about who you are. Uh, I also love leftovers. And at home, I'll often say to my husband, I go, God, no one else in the world is eating this <laughs> right now. And on Sunday, we make something called pottage, which we just put mm -hmm. everything in the pot and whatever it is. But he's game that way. A lot of husbands or other spouses are not. Um, and that's for sure. So, Keep calm and cook on. You have no idea how I need, need this. I know it seems crazy. I've been cooking for 40 years. My daughter sees a very uptight, stressed mother in the kitchen. I need keep calm and cook on. <laughs> Tell me about that. Yeah. So keep calm and cook <laughs> oh, on God. is I can never say it without smiling. Um, <laughs> keep calm and cook on is is my podcast. Um, and it's a place where I get to do just like we're doing right now, have really meaningful conversations. Um, I started it coming from all these things we've been talking about, that kind of desire for human connection, that desire to explore stories. Um, and I, I just, I really love talking to people. It's also a really nice, I don't know if you feel this way about doing what you're doing right now, but you know, it's, it's nice when you work mainly in print to have another outlet and to have stories that you can, uh, you know, tell much more quickly, you know, cookbooks take two years to make, um, a podcast, you know, <laughs> you can release this right now. Yes. <laughs> and it, that's sort of amazing to me and to have this other place um, to put stories and to share them. I also love how accessible podcasts are and that uh, they're, they're free for people to listen to. They're not free to make, it turns out, but um, they're, you know, anyone can listen. And I, I think that kind of accessibility um, is, is really amazing. And so I, I started Keep Calm and Cook On. It was less than a year ago. And I've gotten to just have really wonderful conversations with all sorts of people. And it's funny because the sort of quote unquote food people I talk to, other cookbook authors, chefs and stuff, I find that we end up not really talking about food at all. And then 
I've had yes. some guests on the show who aren't quote unquote food people, although I think everyone's a food person because everyone eats. But, you know, I've talked to um, Cecile Richards, the former president of Planned Parenthood. I've talked to another Cecile, Cecile McLaurin-Salvant, who's this incredible oh, I jazz know. singer. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> I've had them on the show. And so with them, we've talked so much about food. Yes, <laughs> so, because they need you to yeah, have that so opportunity. It's, it's sort of yes. so funny, but um, I've, I've loved doing this show. I've found it um, to just be... Um, yeah, something I really look forward to. Yeah. So wonderful. And the message is so important. Uh, again, I'm smiling too as I'm saying it. Keep calm and cook on because too many people are not cooking. Yeah. And part of it is that it's so hard to keep calm, even yeah. if you're professional. There's yeah. a lot of... Um, uh, expectation from yourself and maybe from yeah. the others too. No, I think I think for the most part, I think the understanding of you know how how positive home cooking is, you know how good it is for the environment, how good it is for you know family and friends to connect, how good it is for you know your health, all these things. You know, there's a lot of advantages to home cooking. There's a lot of really positive kind of side effects to it, um, and I think that's generally pretty understood. But then there's all these challenges that kind of get in the way of that. And so I feel like whether it's with my podcast or the name of it um, or with my cookbooks, whatever, my my goal is to just help other people feel calm in the kitchen because that's where I feel the most calm. I don't feel that way in every other part of my life, <laughs> but I feel, well, it, in feel it in the kitchen. Yeah. You, you found a way yeah. to do that. Yeah. I'm going to work on that because <laughs> I am inspired by you. Um, okay. I would love to hear your legacy recipe. Um, um, yeah. yeah. And maybe why you chose it. Sure. So the, you know, when I knew that question was coming, there was only one thing I could think of, and it's the recipe that's on the cover of Small Victories, um, and it is my Aunt Renee's chicken soup. And it's on the cover of the book because it's my favorite food in the world. It's my favorite thing to cook. Um, it has been a recipe. Um, it's been a, a food on both sides of my family for generations. It's the food that makes me feel most connected to everyone mm. I've come from, Um and it's the food that makes everyone feel better. You know, it's the food that is the most comforting. Um, there's I also haven't seen the recipe. Is there something unusual about it? Um, it's definitely, um, I think, the big lesson in making the chicken soup. I mean, it's a pretty traditional Jewish chicken soup. Um, and I think the lesson really is patience. I think it's really just letting it take its time. And there's no substitute for that, which I think is a good thing to remember in, in cooking and in life in general. But yeah. carrots and parsnips, yeah, carrots, and parsnips, parsnips and yeah, and I like I onion make, skins for color. Yep, yep. you know all the my, secrets. But you know yeah. my, but I don't like the color of my chicken soup, so I'm wondering. That's why I said, yeah, is there a little secret. <laughs> yeah, no, the onion skins because I think it gives it great color. It's also a lot less work. You don't have to peel the onion. I don't peel the carrots. I make this really, uh, really rich stock. I put extra chicken wings in it. I excellent. think they give it great kind of you know body. There's a lot you know of, they like, used to be cheap, Julia, right? Yeah, but now right? chicken wings got so expensive. <laughs> So all of a sudden yeah. the soup is a fortune. Yeah. And I make, I just let that cook and cook and cook. Um, and then I strain that broth because that is what my Aunt Renee did. And then I put fresh carrots and fresh parsnips into ah. it. Um, so you get all the flavor of the fresh vegetable. You cook them. They're not, you know, yes. crunchy. But um, they haven't cooked for hours and hours and hours. They're those, not spent. Yeah. Quote. Those have, you know, been been strained. And I actually like to kind of munch on those. Mm. I find that very comforting. But when I serve it to guests, I cook fresh vegetables in it. I finish it with a little chopped parsley and chopped dill. Um, honestly, because that's what my Aunt Renee did. And I think, you know, something's not broken. 
you don't have to fix it. So wonderful. <laughs> yeah. To me, it's a perfect food. Um, and that's when you say legacy, that is absolutely my legacy is chicken soup. And actually, when my Aunt Renee died, she died when I was in college. She mm. was this amazing cook. And um, I, I took out an obituary in the New York Times and I just wrote, I'll take care of the soup. So to me, <gasps> That soup is oh. is everything. And then so when I got the chance to do my first cookbook, I knew when I wrote the proposal what I wanted the cover to be. I saw that so clearly like that, you know, there was no other choice. So that's priceless. Yeah. That was the one line obituary. That was it. Yeah. I'll take care of the yeah. soup. Julia, when I say one woman kitchen, what does it mean to you? <sighs> that's a great question. I like the title of your show. Um, I mean, I guess it could mean so many different things. To, I, to me, I think about what I feel as one woman in my own kitchen and how powerful I feel. And You know, I, we talked about I feel really calm in the kitchen, but I feel very powerful in the kitchen. And I think that's that's a really cool thing to know and to feel um, and to know that so many other women are capable of feeling the same thing. And I don't think that has to be in the kitchen. It can be anywhere. But for me, I find that in, in my kitchen, in my home kitchen. Yeah. It's a, I mean, it is a metaphor. Thank you. I yeah. love what you just shared. Well, thank you. I'm glad you're doing this. Julia, I'm so sure so many people will want to connect with you. What's the best way? Um, I, I think the best way is honestly through Instagram. It's where I probably spend most of my time when I'm on my phone. Um, and my my handle, my Instagram handle is is just my last name. It's at Tertian. Thank you so much. Thank you. And it was wonderful to yeah, meet you. This was a pleasure. I really look forward to it. And um, I appreciate everything you've done and the kind of groundwork that you've you've done for all of us. And I just it means a lot. It's been great sharing Julia's journey through her cookbook and career. This is Roseanne Gold, and thanks for joining Julia and me in my kitchen. One Woman Kitchen is produced by Mouth Media Network, copyright 2019. Follow me on Instagram at Roseanne Gold, and check out everything I'm up to on my website at roseannegold.com. Thank you for listening. This is Mouth Media Network, your inside voice.